I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. So next week is my last class with my young Dharma students. I spoke a few weeks ago about these classes that I've been uh, helping with. Uh, A Vietnamese nun, a friend of mine, has been in charge of the Dharma school at her temple for a long time. And the summer being what it is and all the responsibilities that she has, she needed a little extra help. And so I've been helping out. And next week is the final class before all of the students go back to school and are too busy to spend their Thursday evenings in Dharma school. And uh, we've been covering the Eightfold Path, which means that this final class we've got together will be on both mindfulness and concentration, the, the last two of the list of, of eight in the Eightfold Path. And it will be interesting to share this with them, uh, to, to teach them on mindfulness and concentration. And I think part of the interest for me, and uh, maybe some of the excitement even, is that because they're so young, there's so much less for them to unlearn in learning about mindfulness and concentration. I was thinking about my my own time as as a Dharma student over the course of, at this point, most of my life, and the various things that I've learned and then all the other things I've had to unlearn over the course of that time. And it seems like a continual process of filling the cup and then emptying it repeatedly. Until I found teachers that I could really trust, that I felt that I could trust. And at that point, I completely emptied the cup to its very last drop and uh, started all over again building up brick by brick the foundations of my understanding of the Dharma. And then from there, I've, I've continued study and practice. But in all that time, I, I started thinking back to something that I had read really early on when I was still pretty young. And uh, it's a book called uh, Way of the Peaceful Warrior. Uh, some of you may have read it. Uh, the book was originally published in 1980, and I read it when it had already been out for about 20 years or so, and that itself was 20 years ago. So this book has been around for about 40 years, 40 years plus, I think, which is uh, pretty amazing. You know, at the time it was written in 1980, a lot of the, the things that the book had to talk about were, were really novel ideas, like, hey, you know, being a vegetarian and practicing Tai Chi and meditation and and all these like really cool ideas that at the time, uh, you know, some people had known about for a long time, but I think the mainstream, it was still pretty fresh. By the time I started reading it 20 years later, it seemed pretty new and interesting to me. But then since then, I've continued to reread the book from time to time. And uh, it, it feels a bit dated now, and uh, it feels even cliche in parts, but I still enjoy it, even though... Um, spiritually, religiously, philosophically speaking, uh, I take different lessons now than what's in that book. I still enjoy it. In fact, the last time uh, 
I think I read it, I read it to my wife because uh, she finds my voice very uh, calming. So sometimes at night I'll, I'll read out loud for a little bit. So she'll get sleepy when we can go to bed. And so I, I read Way of the Peaceful Warrior <laughs> out loud a little, little bit at a time in the evenings until we finished the whole book. Now, if you don't know what the book is about, uh, like I said, it was published in, the, in 1980, and it's written by a man named Dan Millman, and it's a novel of sorts, and you'll see why the of sorts, because it's written by Dan Millman about Dan Millman, who uh, finds a teacher, and then Dan Millman becomes enlightened, which would forever make Dan Millman, in my head, the Kevin Costner of personal growth novels, <laughs> because it did feel a bit like directed by Kevin Costner, written by Kevin Costner, starring Kevin Costner. Uh, and in this book, uh, Dan is uh, a young man going to college uh, up in Berkeley. And he one night goes to a uh, full service all night gas station and finds himself a, a guru, a teacher there working there, teaching him lessons about life and meditation and philosophy. And one might say Dan finds himself a gas station guru. And in the course of, of this book, he, he learns a lot of things, but um, a lot of it seems very Buddhist or Buddhist adjacent. And there's this one part in the book that popped into my head as I was thinking about my students who are going to be learning about mindfulness and concentration. And it had everything to do with uh, the present moment. So uh, that'll be today's discussion overall, the, the power of the present moment. But perhaps uh, different to and contrasted by what's in Way of the Peaceful Warrior. Because there's this one part in the book where Dan's gas station guru that he has called Socrates, because he doesn't actually know the guy's name, he just gives him the name Socrates and he just rolls with it. So the Socrates, at this point in the book, has been giving Dan uh, bumper sticker wisdom, aphorisms, over and over again throughout the whole book. But finally tells Dan, you know, Dan, it's your turn now. you got to give me some wisdom. So what you're going to do is you're going to go sit outside on a rock and sit there until you've got something worth saying. And so Dan goes out, sits on this rock, and starts meditating and starts thinking and starts pondering. And he comes up with one phrase after another, like, what about this thought? And what about that thought? And, you know, his teacher says, no, nah, no, nah, that's not it. And he sends him back out. And then finally, Dan hits on this one thought, like, ah, oh, this is it. And he rushes to, to his teacher and says, I got it. There are no ordinary moments. And his teacher's like, yes, there we go, that's something. And then he, his lessons continue from there. And of course, when, when I read those, those words 20 plus years ago, it, it really did like stick out about, wow, there are no ordinary moments. Like, wow, that seems like really profound. Like, let's take a good, good look at that. And, uh, and you know, the thing is, it's not, it's not really, uh, a bad lesson. It's a good lesson to think about. You know, a lot of us, uh, especially in the West, feel too busy and too rushed. But I think at this point, we can even stop distinguishing between 
east and west. I think we're all in this global society living extremely busy lives all the time. We all feel rushed. And there is something quite pleasant and wonderful about setting aside a lot of the concerns and being here in the present moment. And so this idea of there being no ordinary moments is the very idea that every moment is worth being in fully. You don't have to try to rush off to be somewhere else or in the past or in the future, but like right here is, is sufficient, is enough. And at this point, I think for a lot of us, that's not, that's not a new teaching. That's not a new lesson. A lot of us have heard this in one form or another. You know, when I say bumper sticker wisdom, it literally is the kind of thing you can see, especially driving around Los Angeles on the back of someone's car. You can totally see it. I can picture it now. I'm on the 405 and there it is. There are no ordinary moments. And there is a certain power in recognizing the present moment, in recognizing where we are right here and right now. But I do think that there is this tendency to um, maybe mystify the present moment or perhaps give it some kind of mystical layer that that it just it, it is its own thing and, and you need to be in it and don't you dare have any thoughts while you're in it. You're thinking about the past and that's bad. You're thinking about the future and that's bad. You're thinking in general and that's also bad. That the present moment is this thing that needs to be met non-conceptually. Right? That thoughts are somehow a barrier between you and the present moment. And over time, it, that kind of mentality, that type of view about the present moment has become, uh, for many of us, a distinctly Buddhist interpretation of how to interact with the present moment. And the thing is, when I try to find that particular perspective in Buddhism, especially in the Pali Canon, from the Buddhist perspective, I don't find that. I do find the importance of the present moment, but it comes about in much different ways. In fact, uh, when people think about death meditation in Buddhism, they're quick to jump to the, the real scary, kooky, kind of gross stuff, you know, the, the, the contemplation of the foulness of the body. And people often mistake that as death meditation in the Pali Canon. That when the Buddha tells his disciples to go out to the charnel ground and go off to see where the bodies are sitting and watching them decay and become festering and smelly and breaking down to bones and dirt and dust, that that itself is contemplation of death. But the whole thing is, when that's brought up in, sut in suttas, like the, um, that's in the uh, Satipatthana Sutta, right? That's brought up as not meditation on death. That's brought up as contemplation of foulness of the body. It has a particular purpose in breaking up over-attachment and uh, pleasure and delight and lust in the human body. Just enough. Just, just to balance it out. It's not that the Buddha invented that particular kind of meditation. At that time, <clears throat> excuse me, there had been a lot of wandering ascetics who made it their practice to observe the dead and watch the bodies as they broke up, to break their attachment away from the body. But the Buddha 
taught his disciples to use it just enough, just enough to not have that kind of attachment, to expect any kind of, of true happiness and delight in the body, but just enough. But when it came to actual death meditation, it was always about giving his disciples incentive to practice here and now. Death meditation itself was actually about realizing that life is finite and that you don't know how much time you have and you don't know the conditions of the future. You don't know what the future may bring and you don't know what karma will come to fruit in the future. So whatever conditions of the past, whatever karma has brought you to this present moment, this present moment is the one that you can practice in. This is the one where you have the power to practice, to develop good qualities of the mind. And that ends up being the true death meditation we find in the suttas. Not looking at how gross the body is, not looking at bloated corpses out in the water, but recognizing that because of the fragility of life, we need to focus on right now. And then how we focus on right now matters as well. It's become quite common to think that the way one settles into the present moment is in a very, like I already said before, non-conceptual way, but further than that, that it's all about doing things with, with such complete uh, deliberateness. Like I often joke, and I'm, I'm sure some of you heard it before, that these days mindfulness has become about how slow you can eat your oatmeal, right? And that is very much the way we, we view it now. It's that how much can I focus on this one movement, this one thing? How can I truly taste the, you know, the peach or the plum or whatever without any thoughts getting in the way? But the thing is, the, the present moment is about attention. It is about being aware and looking at what's happening. But I don't think that's actually in a non-conceptual way. The Buddha would emphasize very strongly the whole concept of uh, yoniso manisikara, right? Manisikara, in this sense, being attention. So yoniso, appropriate attention. Some scholars have even translated this differently as um, trying to think of the, the word like um, conscientiousness or something like that. The idea of being, oh, consideration, proper consideration. That's, that's one way some scholars have translated that. Which, when you think about appropriate attention and and proper consideration, none of that seems to be non-conceptual or not involving the mind or not thinking. And that's one of the things that, that I, I want to focus on because truthfully, a lot of the thoughts we develop are how we, we start steering the mind towards the Dharma and also how we start settling the mind into deeper states of tranquility and meditation. It's not by shutting the mind off. And also, I think, too, that the way we view the mind ends up becoming very problematic, too. That thoughts somehow aren't about what's going on right now. Ignoring the very fact that when you're thinking about the past, you're not in the past. Those are past thoughts in the present moment. And when you're thinking about the future, it's the same idea. You're not in the future. You know, those are thoughts about the future in the present moment which means that those thoughts are the very things you can bring attention to, where your awareness can land. And I got to be frank here that in that, in that book, Way of the Peaceful Warrior, and then it got adapted into a movie, which 
I don't recommend. The book is great. I mean, even if you disagree with some of the teachings in there, go ahead and read the book. It's a good time. Socrates is a riot. He's a funny guy. Dan is dorky. He makes a lot of mistakes. Like, I remember this one part in the book where uh, Dan's teacher, Socrates, tells Dan maybe it's time to start being a vegetarian and live a celibate life for a while. And Dan, at this point, is dating this one uh, fellow student at his university. And he has to break the news to her by going to dinner that night at her house and saying, well, hey, we've been having a great time and I still want to hang out, but perhaps from now on you should think of me as a priest, right? And of course, he never gets another call back to go on a date with her, right? But in any case, with all of these different things in there, 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 there is still this thing we can take away from the, the power of the present moment by applying appropriate attention. Specifically, when the Buddha brought it up, he would talk about how appropriate attention really comes down to the Four Noble Truths. Oftentimes, the way we understand the Four Noble Truths now is just these things to be memorized, but the Four Noble Truths bring us back to the present moment by actually looking at the way they're affecting our experience right now. The way they can bring us to freedom and peace and tranquility right now. When the Buddha would apply the Four Noble Truths in a meditative way, what he would do is, rather than just saying, you know, there is suffering, there suffering arises, it ceases, there's a path to it, cessation and everything, he would actually look and say, this is suffering. This is the origination of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. This is the path when developed that leads to the end of suffering. And by focusing on this, it's actually drawing back to the mind and body, where we want to be in the present moment. Not some time in the future, not some time when we can schedule a retreat or go to a temple, especially these days when that's pretty tough to do. It's one of the very reasons we're on Zoom right now is because we don't have that ability to just go off somewhere right now. But we have the ability to be here in our minds, in our bodies, and apply appropriate attention. So then when we look at the Four Noble Truths in this way, we can see that the whole point is to really comprehend stress and suffering, to understand its nature, to abandon the causes when we see them arise, when we see them originate in the mind, right? To develop, to rather to realize the qualities of the mind that, that lead to peace, that lead to Nibbana, and then to actually develop the qualities of the mind that are laid out in the Eightfold Path. And then that's the way we apply appropriate attention. And one of the things that I find really powerful about the way that the Buddha teaches this is that it's not a cookie-cutter way of going about realization. It's not this thing that it's just this one method, this one tool, this one way, but rather a multitude of tools that we can, we, we can apply in the present moment, which actually makes the present moment more engaging, something that we actually are more driven to, to pursue and, and practice with and develop because I have found in my own practice that when I've tried to have that very non-conceptual, very uh, no-thought, empty mind approach to meditation, that there doesn't really seem to be any development on my part. No real sense that I'm seeing any progress or growth or improvement 
but rather just a lot of the same stuff happening every time. When we talk about defilements that arise in the mind, different restlessness and, um, you know, sloth and torpor and all these things, you know, sensual desire, all these things that come up. If you only apply the same technique, the same tool, the same way in every instance, and it doesn't work, then why continue with the same thing the same way? You know, oftentimes we talk about that as a kind of insanity, that when, so when you do the same thing repeatedly over and over again and expect different results each time, like, why would that even happen? Why would it work that way? And why would it be the kind of thing that the Buddha would prescribe as a way out of suffering? These days, when people are taught to focus on the present moment, it does seem to be the kind of thing where it's the same technique applied. That all one needs is radical acceptance, and what one needs is to completely shut the brain off, not to think. You know, I bring up Way of the Peaceful Warrior because it's kind of just a fun book. Um, but there are other examples I could give where that has become the... Zeitgeist might not be the, the right word for it, but the, the sort of flavor that has entered the, the conversation on mindfulness and on present moment awareness. That if, if you could just get your mind out of the way, then you could really be there. If all the concepts went away. As if you went to the grocery store and all the concepts of grocery store went away. You didn't even know where you were. It's like, wow, look at that. What's that? I don't know. You go down the, the soap aisle and now there's, there's blue and red and everything. And I guess they all look like jewels now because you have no concept of soap and dish soap, right? And in that way, you end up with what exactly? But when we take the, the Buddha's technique, or rather the, the tools that he offers in appropriate attention, we end up coming back to something quite different. Then, when we go to the present moment, it's in a more targeted way, a more specific way, a more purposeful way. And that's actually a good thing to have purpose in, and direction in meditation. When you come to this moment right here and bring awareness to, to body and mind and the breath, all of that right here is done in a purposeful way. And that doesn't mean a strenuous way, that doesn't mean in a very like a task-oriented way, but not in a meandering sort of way. Like when we sit down to meditate, we're not just watching the clouds fly by. That can be peaceful, and that can be relaxing, but at a certain point, we have to do more with the meditation than just that. We, uh, you know, To be following the Buddha's path, it has to be more than just the relaxation part, that there has to be this part that is really seeking to not only understand the mind, and how it grasps, and how it clings, but to also see the ways in which we can assist the mind in letting go of that grasping and clinging, and seeing what kind of qualities actually lead to more peace, and more tranquility, and more wisdom and discernment right now. Not in some distant future, not in some other lifetime, not in some other imagined retreat we might be able to have in the future once we assume that the virus is all cleared up and things are, are ready to go for retreats again. But right now, that's the power of the present moment. And when we bring ourselves to the present moment in that way, it, we end up finding something that, you know, I would like to call relaxed effort. There's purpose, but it's not strenuous. 
there's determination and resolve, but it's not tiring or exhausting because there's no sense that there's a, a finish line you're rushing to. You're simply dealing with what's coming up right now. I remember that when I was uh, a martial arts student, many times there'd be people who always wanted to, to rush to, to be a black belt. And there were some dojos that I was a part of, some, some martial arts schools, where the teachers really didn't mind. Those guys that just wanted their black belt, I mean, if they could pay their dues and they'll get their belt, whether or not they're actually good at what they know or what they're training to do. And so you'd find people that were just really determined on that black belt. They really wanted that black belt. And so they'd pay however much money and they'd be there at the dojo nearly every single day and they'd spend all this time with the teacher and then sure enough, they'd have their black belt. And then once they got that black belt, they disappeared. Not realizing that for a lot of martial arts, uh, at least some of the ones that I studied, that black belt is sort of like the preliminary stage. You do all this training to get to your black belt, and then that's when they tell you, well, this is when your training really begins. This is when you're really starting to understand the nuances and the techniques and the way things go. This is when you're, you, you were a learner and now you're seeking to become a master. That's the difference. My attitude was, was quite different in that I wasn't really preoccupied in whether or not I was getting to that black belt. <laughs> Funny enough, this, this uh, example might break down because I didn't end up getting a black belt. But I did for a while get really good at martial arts. And the reason why was because I was focused on the techniques I was learning right then. Whatever it is that my, my sensei had to show me, that's what I would focus on. And that's what he wanted me to focus on not what belt I had at the time. And so I noticed that there was this one point where I was in these classes and there were these advanced students that only wanted to train with other advanced students. And I was the only more advanced student that continued to train with all of the beginners and all of the sort of mid-range mid students. And this actually made me better I think, and not, I'm not saying this in any kind of egotistical way, but I saw the benefit that I began to apply to my approach to the Dharma as well, which is I kept having to go back to the basics over and over and over again, where all these other guys were trying to focus on all the advanced, really heady, complicated stuff all the time. I kept going back to the basics because I kept training with the new guys all the time. So we were going over posture again and different stances again, and how to do basic rolls and basic this, and how to do this takedown again and again and again. And by looking at that in that way, I ended up getting actually pretty good about, with it. And so when we take that back to the, to the Dharma, there's that same mentality that we, un, we think that progress is this thing that happens because we study very strenuously, we apply all these crazy concepts, we learn all these deep philosophies, and it becomes this thing where we're trying to amass wisdom and ourselves become scholars. But then there's this reaction to that that's happened in the history of Buddhism, where it becomes completely anti-intellectual and anti-thought and anti-thinking. And with that goes, goes out the window a lot of the tools that the Buddha has given us to address the present moment and to apply appropriate awareness, appropriate attention. And then what we're left with is something that looks a lot like just sitting around and not doing a whole lot, which means that when all the hard stuff does come up in the mind, 
there's no way of addressing what comes up other than to just watch it, just watch it be there. And the Buddha saw that this kind of stuff happens in the mind, and in the Pali Canon goes so far as to say that there are some defilements in the mind that do go away simply by watching them. That in itself is a valid technique for some things that come up in the mind. That when they arise, you see that it's there, you apply your awareness and attention to it, and then it does just go away. But there are other things that require other techniques. That when various defiling thoughts come up, what needs to happen in, in, instead is a rush of energy of competing thoughts that are themselves skill, skillful and wholesome. Or perhaps redirecting the mind to something else happening in the body, applying attention to the, the sense bases and so on. All these different things that we're aware of when we learn about them, but also are able to use when we turn the attention to the present moment and actually see what's going on with real awareness, with real attention, which means we have to actually have some concepts along. What it means is that we actually have to be thinking while we meditate. We actually have to have the two qualities that the, the Buddha would bring up when talking about jhana, that there has to be directed thought and evaluation that we can actually think our way into deeper states of meditation, which completely goes against what we've been told by a lot of different sources over the course of, I don't know, 80 years plus, maybe. So when we come back to this present moment and start looking at it and recognizing that it's not ordinary, well, it's not ordinary because there's all this potential in every moment. Every moment of our lives has the potential to be the moment that we awaken. But the way we do that is through the tools the Buddha has given us, which is simply, which is rather more than simply uh, being in the present or simply being aware or watching non-conceptually or simply accepting whatever is there in the present moment, but actually applying the teachings that we find in the Four Noble Truths to our meditation right here and right now. When I've done that, when I've been practicing that way, it gives me such a rush of, of uh, energy and, and direction to my meditation. I don't feel like I'm simply wandering around and just watching the clouds go by, the river moving around, but rather that there's something that I can actually do with my mental states. And then when you actually do come across something that's really tough, some kind of Gordian knot in the mind, rather than having, having it be this thing that you don't know what to do with, you're just kind of moving it around hoping it goes away, you actually have the ability to pull it thread by thread until it comes undone, or in some cases, slice right through it. And that's far more useful, I think. Far more practical in that way. Alright, so... This one got a little more philosophical than I had in mind, but I do think that when we talk about the present moment, it is useful. We do live very busy lives. We do live lives that, that give us so much things to focus on that we're not focusing on right now. But once, we, once we've learned that lesson and begin living in the present moment, we've got to actually start doing something with that present moment. Abiding in the now alone is not enough, I don't think. 
and it's certainly not what I have found as the solution given by the Buddha in the Pali Canon. So, food for thought in any case. Uh, I hope that that was useful in some way to, to all of you. And uh, I think I'll end it there. Thank you.